0: Oh!
1: to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth, one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 14, as we follow along with today's lesson.
2: This brass serpent that Moses put on the pole, later became sort of an icon for the people and they made an idol out of it and they began to worship it in later years. During the reign of Hezekiah, he took this brass serpent that the people had started to worship and he broke it in pieces and he ground it into just powder. And he called it nehushtan, which means a thing of brass. This is not a god, he says. This is just a thing of brass, not to be worshipped. But you see, it was a reminder to the people of God's work in their past history. But whenever you begin to worship the relics that remind you of God's work in past history. It's a sign that you have lost an awful lot. You have lost the consciousness of the presence of God in your life today, and you're reaching back to try to find something that will stir some kind of spiritual warmth. Uh, You know, it's, it's like a person... Finding a piece of the old canvas tent we used to have and saying, "Oh, remember the good old tent days," you know, and and framing it, you know, and and setting it up, and it, it, because it sort of reminds us of of those days, you know. You forget an awful lot how the stinky those heaters were and how, how cold the nights could get and that kind of thing. But you know, uh, it, it's just when people are. are pulling from the past, the relics of the past, to remind them of what God had done. I'm not interested in what God has done in your life 25 years ago. I'm interested in what he's doing tonight. Unless your past experiences have been translated into the present relationship, they are not valid. They're of no value. What God is doing tonight is what's vital and what's important. And what God is going to do for us this next week as we just open our hearts to him and as we seek him and as we follow after him it isn't looking back with fondness at the past it's looking ahead to what God wants to do tonight if we will just but let him the work that God desires to do now in us and so as Paul the apostle said those things which were gained to me I counted loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ for whom I suffered the loss of all things, but count them but refuse that I may know him. Notice, I counted them lost. He's talking about an experience he had 30 years ago. But then he brings it up to date, and he says, I do count them. I still, you know, tonight, it's still true. For I want to know him, he said, and the power of his resurrection being made conformable and the fellowship of his suffering being be made conformable unto his death, even the death of the cross. So I don't count myself, he said, to have apprehended, but this is what I'm doing. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before. And that should always be the case. Past is past. It's only valuable as it has an effect upon me now. The future is ahead of us. That's where we look. Forgetting those things which are behind and now reaching forth to those things which are before. I'm pressing towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So, the process, looking by faith at the cross of Jesus, seeing that God there judged our sins. I am born again. Jesus goes on to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him. Now, the gave his only begotten Son, he gave him to die upon the cross, to be lifted up, to receive the judgment of our sins. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him Should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that is more than just a quantity of life. It is a quality of life. When the young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good Master, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life, this age-abiding life? He was looking at the quality of life that he saw in Jesus. That's the thing that attracted him. Quantity of life without quality is hell. For a person to live in a comatose state month after month, year after year, having to be fed intravenously, and, and oh, that's, that's a living hell. It isn't the quantity of life that I'm concerned with, it's the quality of life. But it's glorious to realize that this quality of life I have in Jesus is also quantity. It's going to go on forever. And that's glorious too. But it's a quality of life that we have in Jesus. God's purpose, loving purpose for you, is that you not perish because of your sin, but that you have everlasting life. And that comes by Believing on Jesus. So simple. So simple. That my little grandchildren, four, five, six years old, can understand it and believe in Jesus. But so profound that I even with all of my years of study cannot comprehend or understand it. I just know it's so. The beauty of it because of its simplicity, and at the same time, so profound. And then Jesus went on to say, and I think that this is extremely important, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. So many times we feel that Jesus is condemning us. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That was his purpose, not to condemn, but to save. You remember the woman taken in the very act of adultery? We're going to be getting that very quickly as we move through John. And the Pharisees brought her screaming, hysterical, to Jesus. And they said, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery and our Moses said, we're to stone her. What do you say? Jesus just wrote on the ground as though he was ignoring them. And so they began to press the issue. And so Jesus stood up and he looked at them and he said, Let him who is without sin among you throw the first stone. And he knelt down and began to write again until they all left. And he stood up and he said, Woman, where are those who condemn you? And she said, Well, I guess they're not here. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Beautiful words. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn But how is it that we are always thinking that Jesus is condemning us? How is it that we always, every time we do something wrong, we think, oh boy, here it comes, you know, (laughs) that, that he's condemning us? Jesus said, no, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. And he said, he who believes, and of course, that is born again. How am I born again? By believing. He who believes is not condemned. What a beautiful passage of Scripture. Oh, that we would take it to heart. Oh, that we would believe it. He that believeth is not condemned. As Paul wrote to the Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation to those who believe in Jesus. He that believeth is not condemned. Now, Later on in the 8th chapter of Romans, Paul asks a question. Who is he that condemneth? And he answers his question by not saying who is he that condemns, but he tells you who isn't condemning. Who is he that condemneth? And then he said, it is Christ who died Yea, rather, is risen again and is even at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you. The opposite of condemning you, he's making intercession for you. Oh, how glorious it is to be born again, to have no condemnation. How glorious it is to be in Christ Jesus where there is no condemnation. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And he that believeth is not condemned. However, he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. And he that believeth not is condemned already. In other words... Jesus said it wasn't necessary for me to condemn the world. I didn't come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned and is already condemned. I came to save those who are condemned to death. And all of us were condemned to death because of our sin. The soul that sinneth shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. We were all condemned to death. He didn't have to condemn us. We're already condemned. And he that believeth not is condemned already, seeing he has not believed on the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil For everyone that doeth evil Hateth the light Now, we meet people all the time Who express a hatred Towards Jesus Christ You know, the the subject of Jesus Christ Is a difficult subject to talk about With many people because they have such a hatred towards Jesus. Now, for them, it would be hard for them to explain why they feel this hatred and animosity towards Jesus. If you ask them to explain why it is that they hate Jesus so much, they would be hard-pressed to explain it. It's just a spiritual thing. And they probably couldn't tell you And they surely wouldn't tell you the truth. Jesus tells you the truth. The reason why they hate him is because they love evil. And Jesus stands for that which is righteous and that which is holy and that which is pure. And thus, because they love evil, they hate the light. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light Neither cometh to the light Lest his deeds should be reproved Lest he would be rebuked and all By the light, by, by the, the revealing of what he's doing In other words, the light exposes And thus they don't want to come to Jesus Because their evil will be exposed But Jesus said, he that doeth the truth cometh to the light, that his deeds might be made manifest that they are wrought in God. Now, the Bible tells us if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with the other as the blood of Jesus Christ is just cleansing us from all of our sins. Born again, walking in the spirit, walking in the light, we have this whole new dimension of fellowship with God. And when man is born again, what happens is that here he is in the natural state as you were born, body and mind. But when you're born again, the spirit comes alive and immediately there is that connection again with God, communion with God. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And God is seeking such to worship him but you can't do it until the Spirit is alive. And that comes by believing in Jesus Christ. So, He didn't come to condemn, but to bring you spiritual life, to bring you light. Now, we walk in Jesus, and and the, the works that we do, they're manifest that they are the works of God. They are that which God has done in us and that which God is doing through us. It becomes obvious that these glorious works are just God's working in and through our lives. Now, break. Verse 22. After these things, we're through now with the conversation with Nicodemus. And after these things... Jesus came and his disciples to the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them, and they were baptizing. Now, in the next chapter, it tells us that John heard that Jesus was baptizing more people than he was. Uh, Though uh, John, (laughs) uh, the beloved who wrote this, said that Jesus really wasn't baptizing, but his disciples uh, were baptizing. So now he is carrying on a ministry that is similar to John the Baptist, in that he is now with his disciples. They're in the area of Judea. people are coming and are being baptized. Now at the same time, John was also baptizing in Anon, which was near to Salem, because there was a lot of water there. And they came and were baptized. The fact that there was a lot of water uh, no doubt indicates that the baptism was by full immersion rather than by sprinkling, because if you sprinkled, it wouldn't take a lot of water. So uh, John was not yet cast into prison. Now, it is obvious from the other Gospels that Jesus really began his full-on public ministry, uh, after John was put in prison. But uh, here they are now, not far from each other, both of them engaged in baptizing people. John, the end of the old economy, the last of the prophets, yet the greatest. But he is the last of God's word through the prophets, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke to man through the prophets, hath now spoken unto us by his only Son, whom he has made heir of all things. So now you have the end of the old and the beginning of the new. I mean, here's a little crossover here. They are both of them now ministering. John, the end of the old economy. Jesus, the beginning of the new. And and they are baptizing uh, their... uh, In the area of uh, the Jordan River, there in Judea. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And of course, (laughs) uh, there were just an awful lot of laws in the Jews concerning purifying. how you were to wash your hands, how much water was to be used, uh, the way you would hold your hands and, and the way you would rub your hands. I mean, they had all of these rules and regulations. Uh, it had to be running water and, and just uh, oodles of regulations. And so they were always bringing up issues over things like that. And they came unto John and they said unto him, Rabbi or teacher... He that was with you beyond Jordan, to whom you bore witness, behold, the same is baptizing, and a lot of people are going to him. Now, here are John's disciples. They're coming to him, and they're they're reporting. You know, the one that you baptized and you witnessed of him, they're baptizing now, and just an awful lot of people are going to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given to him from heaven. Paul the Apostle asked the question, What do you have but what you have received? And if you have received it, then why do you boast of it as though you hadn't received it? You see, if there's any good work that is coming forth from your life, it's because God is doing it. And if God is doing it, then how can you boast as though God wasn't doing it? As though you're some special pumpkin, you know. (laughs) So no man can, you know, operate in the realm of the Spirit unless God is doing it. Except it be given to him from heaven. And thus, the whole idea is... Rejoice in the Lord and give glory to God for that which he has done. Don't magnify the instrument through which he has done his work, but magnify God. And he said, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Messiah, but that I am sent before him. And these beautiful words of John now. "Uh, What a true servant. How true he is to his ministry. He is not seeking glory for himself. He said, look, I told you I'm not the Messiah, but I am sent before him. And, you're, and he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. Now, they were very familiar with this uh, analogy as God, through the prophets, uh, declared himself uh, the husband of Israel. They were his bride. And so, God, as being sort of the husband and, and, and the nation of Israel, the bride, and so the church, the bride of Christ, Jesus, the bridegroom. And John says that. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. They're not mine, they're his. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And this my joy therefore is fulfilled. The fulfillment of joy in bringing the bride to the bridegroom. Now that was the, that was the, place of the friend of the bridegroom. He would bring the bride to the groom, and the groom would not speak until he accepted the bride. He was silent until he accepted the bride. And when he spoke, it meant his acceptance of the bride. So John is saying, the friend of the bridegroom which stands and hears him, that is, hears him in the accepting of the bride, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And this, my joy therefore is fulfilled. I've accomplished my job. And then these fabulous words, and oh, God help us to all, just to have this attitude. He must increase, but I must decrease. How true. He must increase. John's not looking for a place for his mission is fulfilled. His joy is fulfilled when Christ is honored, when Christ is glorified. And that should be true in each of our lives, especially those who are serving the Lord. The great joy comes when Jesus is honored, when Jesus is glorified, for he must increase. And I must decrease. Now, that is the witness of John the Baptist concerning Jesus. And as we pointed out, John in this gospel is seeking to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. That by proving that to you, you will come to believe that truth and thus have the eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. And thus he is picking out certain witnesses to bear witness of the truth of Jesus Christ, John being one of those witnesses. He is picking out incidents from the life of Christ, miracles and all, that again prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And throughout this book he will be presenting proofs By the works of Jesus and proofs by the various witnesses that that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. We have the witness now of John the Baptist. Beginning with verse 31, there are two fields of thought as to the authorship. There are some that believe that John the Baptist is still talking and that John the Beloved is recording the words of John the Baptist. But there are others who believe that uh, John's last words were, he must increase and I must decrease. And if those were his last words, what beautiful last words uh, to come forth from a person's ministry. You know, I've accomplished my purpose. I've brought the bride to the groom. I've heard his voice. My joy is complete. I've accomplished, you know, that, that call of God. And now he must increase, I must decrease. So that John, the author of the book, then records these things. He that cometh from above is above all. Now Jesus, uh, remember, talked to Nicodemus about uh, that uh, no man ascends up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So he that cometh from above. Notice it's, it's uh, a present tense. It isn't a past tense. He who came. No, with Jesus, the eternal God, it's, he's always coming from above, is above all. And he that is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. And he that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he sh- hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, And no man receives his testimony. Uh, Basically, Jesus said this to Nicodemus, uh, that uh, you have not believed. I've told you of heavenly things and you believe not. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. Having received the witness of Jesus, having believed the testimony of Jesus, we attest to it, that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaks the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. In other words, he had the fullness of the Spirit. It wasn't given to Jesus by measure. It wasn't just sort of measured out, but the fullness of the Spirit. And thus, He speaks God's word to us. Jesus said, the words that I speak, they are life. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. In Psalm 1, we have the Father speaking to the Son, saying, ask of me, and I will give to you the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth. For thy possession. We read in Philippians, God has highly exalted him, given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has given all things unto his Son. He loves the Son. And he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. That's just straight, plain, as you can get. If you believe on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you have everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. You'll never know what spiritual life is. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You'll never see life. But tragically, the wrath of God abides on him. As we read in the book of Hebrews, there awaits that certain fearful, fiery indignation of the wrath of God, whereby he will devour his adversaries. How am I born again? Believing on Jesus Christ. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish. And he that believeth hath everlasting life has passed from condemnation into life. Oh, how glorious. Our relationship with God tonight made possible through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's turn to John chapter 4. Now, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, you remember at the close of chapter three, they came to John the Baptist and they said, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond Jordan, to whom you bore witness, behold, he is baptizing and all men are coming to him. And John there gave his witness concerning Jesus, declaring, He must increase and I must decrease. Jesus has begun His ministry calling people to repentance, much like John the Baptist. And many are coming to Him, in fact, more are coming to Him than to John the Baptist. Now, word has come to the Pharisees that Jesus is baptizing more than John. However, John, the beloved, the writer of the gospel, gives us the little commentary here. He tells us, though, Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. They were coming to Jesus, and the disciples were baptizing them. Jesus, hearing this, knowing that the Pharisees had heard Of the success of his ministry, left Judea. He did not want a confrontation with them at this time. And so he departed again to Galilee. And it says he must needs go through Samaria. Now, the only reason that I can see why he needed to go through Samaria was to meet the woman at the well. Going through Samaria from Judea to Galilee was not the normal route that the Jews took because of the tremendous animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians who took the people out of the land and repopulated them in other areas. However, they brought other people in to occupy the northern kingdom. But the people that had come to occupy the northern kingdom were being ravaged by wild animals and So they determined it's because they didn't know the customs of the gods of the people that occupied that territory before. So they brought some Jews back to teach these people concerning God. So that those in the northern kingdom were sort of considered by the Jews half-breeds. There came the intermarriage and so forth, and uh, they were called the Samaritans and considered half-breeds by the Jews. Later, of course, the Jews, the, uh, the Judah, the southern kingdom, went into captivity to Babylon. And after 70 years, when they were allowed to return to the land, as they started the rebuilding of the temple, those from the northern kingdom came down to help them. Offered their help in the rebuilding of the temple But because they were considered half-breeds Because of the intermarriage and the mixtures They refused their help And that created a deep animosity that never ended The animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews The Samaritans felt snubbed Because their offer to help was rejected And so they began setting up Mount Gerizim as the place of worship. And they began to develop their traditions. They began to say that Mount Gerizim was the true site of the temple. That Abraham, when he offered Isaac, actually offered him on Mount Gerizim, not on Moriah in Jerusalem. And they began their sacrifices on Mount Gerizim. To the present day, the Samaritans still offer animal sacrifices on Mount Gerizim. There are only about 200 Samaritans left. And there has been so much inner marriage that most of them are imbecilic but they are about to pass off the scene, Uh, but they still exist to the present day, and at Passover still offer a Passover lamb on Mount Gerizim. But because of the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans, outright hostility, the Jews from the Galilee region coming to Jerusalem to worship God would do their best not to go through Samaria but would go down to the Jordan river cross the Jordan and come down on the opposite side of the Jordan river and then recross it near Jericho and come up to Jerusalem for the various feast and going back to Galilee they would go the same way So to go through Samaria was unusual. And the fact that it said he must needs go through Samaria, the only reason why he must needs would be to have a meeting with this woman of Samaria who was thirsty for living water. And so they came to the city of Samaria, which is called today it's called Shechem, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now we are told in Genesis 33 that Jacob bought a parcel of ground from Shechem and uh, that uh, he gave this parcel to Joseph, we know from the Scripture here. And Joseph when he died in Egypt, made commandments concerning his bones. He made them promise that when they returned to the land, they would carry his bones out of Egypt and bury them in the land of his fathers. And so when the children of Israel did come from Egypt, they brought the mummy of Joseph and they buried it there in this parcel of ground outside of uh, the modern Shechem, uh, where Jacob had dug a well, and Jacob's well is there to the present day. Now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. The wells usually had a uh, rock around them about 24 inches high, And the rock had a hole in the center of it in which they would let their buckets down into the well. Uh, It was to protect people from just falling in the well. And and so the the well was surrounded by the rock about 24 inches high. You can, of course, see it today. Uh, The well there, you have to go down into a uh, lower room to see Jacob's well. But uh, Jesus was sitting on the side of the well, wearied with his journey. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And so the human aspect of the nature of Jesus wearied with the journey. Uh, And it was about the sixth hour. Now, uh, that uh, is thought to be the reckoning of the Hebrew time, uh, which would be uh, about noontime. Uh, the Romans sort of reckoned from noon, so if it were Roman time, it would be six in the evening. But uh, uh, you know, who knows? It's a matter of choice. Whatever you would like, whatever fits, whatever you are comfortable with, take it, because uh, it really doesn't make any difference, does it? And there came, a, <laughs> but theologians—they get in, you know—they write books on this kind of stuff. <laughs> There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus saith unto her, Give me a drink. For his disciples were gone away in the city to buy meat. Now, John's writing is interesting because all the way through, as John is writing, he he makes his own little commentary. You see, he has written the account many years after the fact. And and thus he sort of adds his own little commentary as he writes. And so uh, he he adds here, for the disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that you being a Jew ask a drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? And then John gives us a little commentary again, for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, so that you'll understand why she was questioning. Uh, him, why he would ask her for a drink of water. And Jesus answered and said unto her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, Jacob's well is not a spring, uh, it is uh, water that percolates through the faults into uh, the well, uh, and uh, it, it's typical well, uh, where it's sort of a reservoir of water that uh, percolates into uh, the well that was dug by Jacob, and uh, you have to, it's about 100 feet deep and uh, to the water, and thus uh, you have to let the bucket down quite a ways. Uh, to get the water from uh, Jacob's well. And so uh, Jesus said, I would have given you living water, that is spring water, water that flows out of a spring, uh, fresh spring water. And the woman said unto him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Just... Where are you going to get this living water? It's interesting. Now, Jesus started on a common level, the material level, ask for a drink of water. I mean, that's something that's very common. And, uh, but he always started on the level where they were at, but then he began to move immediately into the spiritual level. The moment he started talking to her about living water, he's now talking to her about something that is spiritual. She doesn't quite grasp what he's getting at. How could he give her living water? That well is deep. He doesn't have anything to draw with. Just where are you going to get this Living water. Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us this well and drank from it himself and his children and his cattle? The question Are you greater than Jacob? We know the answer. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. An extremely profound statement. A statement that should be written over every ambition that you have. What is it that you are hoping to achieve or attain in life? What is it that you think will bring you satisfaction and happiness? What is it that you are pressing towards? The goals that you hope to fulfill? What are the possessions that you are desiring to acquire? Thinking if you only had that, then you would be fully satisfied. You wouldn't want anything else. Whatever it is, right over the top of it, drink of this water, but you will thirst again. There is nothing of the material realm, of the worldly realm, that can satisfy that deep, clamant cry within the heart of a man for God. Man tries to fill it, With many things, but he always finds that he's thirsty again. I think that some of the statements that are made by people that we say have it made, Ted Turner said much the same thing. It's the excitement of the pursuit, but the achievement is disappointing. Success really doesn't mean much to the person who has achieved it. It only means a lot to those who are seeking to achieve it because they're in the quest. They're in the pursuit. But there's disappointment when you finally achieve. Because it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fill the void like you were hoping that it would. Drink of this water, Jesus said. You will thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Interesting. Now he's fully into the spiritual level and... I think that she, at this point, thinks that he's putting her on. He's an interesting fellow. Can't quite figure him out. This is the little gal who had men all figured out, but this one's sort of (laughs) an enigma. She can't quite figure him out. He's talking about things that she doesn't quite follow along where he's going. Water that if you drink of it, you will never thirst again, but it will be sort of like a spring, just a well of living water just springing up inside of you. And so she going to go along with him, she said unto him, "Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither have to come here to draw water. I'll take some. And Jesus said unto her, Well, go and call your husband, and then come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you now live with is not your husband. And in that, You spoke the truth. (laughs) Suddenly, the mask is off. It seems like people wear masks. We want to appear to others to be very self assured. We spend so much of our time trying to make an impression on others hoping that they will think better of us than we really are. Wearing mask. This woman was wearing a mask, but suddenly she came to the realization, I'm not fooling this man. He's looking right inside of me. He sees the emptiness that is there. He's talking to me about thirsting. And yes, there is a great thirst within. My life is not fulfilling. There's an emptiness. He's looking inside. He sees the emptiness. He knows that I'm not overflowing the bubbly little person that I'm trying to portray. He sees the void. And he knows all about me. I wasn't fooling him when he said, when I told him I didn't have any husband. Wow, he he knew all about me. He sees right through me. And when the mask was off, the question came, where can I find God? People wear all kinds of masks today. But down deep inside of every man, there is that question. Where can I find God? the quest of the heart of man for God. She said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you say that it is in Jerusalem where men ought to worship. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. The Samaritans have a religion. They have a form of religion. You have the sacrifices, but you really don't know what you're worshiping. You worship you know not what. The Jews know at least what they're worshiping. They're following the law.
1: We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the Gospel of John in our next broadcast, as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order John 3-4 through when visiting the thewordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast, or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD, and our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, PO Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck.
2: Father, we give thanks to You for these glorious, eternal truths. May we live by them. May we hold on to them. May we receive them tonight. Lord, you came from heaven. You told us the truth concerning the Father. We receive that truth. We believe tonight in the love of God for us and in the provision of God whereby our sins are are forgiven because of the judgment of God meted against Jesus as he was there on the cross, lifted up for us. Lord, may we walk in the glorious light of your truth, doing your work in such a way that men will recognize that, yes, yes, The hand of God is upon our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: This
0: program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Lately, social media and our newscasters are predicting that worldwide calamity is right around the corner. In fact, so-called experts are saying we don't have much time left on the planet. And we really believe this, maybe they're just trying to scare us. Everybody seems to be asking the question, what is the world coming to? But as Christians, we don't need to be anxious, because the answer is found in the book of Revelation. The Word for Today encourages our radio listeners to pick up a copy of Pastor Chuck's commentary on the book of Revelation entitled, What the World is Coming To. Known for his simple teaching of the scriptures, Pastor Chuck's commentary will help every reader understand what God's plan is for the human race. Not only will this book educate you about the future, it's an excellent resource to equip you to give an answer to those who don't recognize God's coming judgment. To order your copy of What the World's Coming To by Chuck Smith in print or in digital format, please call 1-800-272-9673. Or you can order this book online at thewordfortoday.org.